0: So today, we come to the Psalms. We will exposit Psalm 1. It is, in a way, sad to be finished with Ephesians, but it's also exciting to be in this collection of 150 Psalms. So before we look at Psalm 1, allow me to introduce the complete collection of 150 Psalms, the collection in the Hebrew Bible is entitled praises, pointing to the fact that these praises primarily express thanksgiving and adoration toward God as acts of worship. Praises was the hymn book of the Hebrew people used for temple worship. The Septuagint, that's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, labeled these books or these psalms or songs uh, labeled them as the book of Psalms, since the word is found some 80 times throughout the Psalms. The word Psalms, Menzor in the Hebrew, simply means melody or song. So the Psalms are a collection of poetic songs that were used for Hebrew worship. But they're certainly more than that. We know they, them to be the word of God. They're quoted by other scriptures as the word of God. God has spoken through these Hebrew poems. They're inspired, they are inspired and inerrant, just like all the 66 books of the entire Bible. These Psalms express a variety of emotions, so we certainly relate to them. We see love and adoration toward God, sorrow over personal and collective sin, we see dependence upon God in desperate situations, the battle between fear and faith, walking with God on dark journeys, thanksgiving for God's care and provision, devotion to the Word of God, and confidence in the ev- eventual victory of God's purposes. We see themes throughout the Psalms like monotheism, that there's one God. We see the theme of creation and fall, election and covenant, covenant membership, and eschatology, teaching about future things. In this collection, we find psalms of laments, hymns of praise, hymns of thanksgiving, hymns of celebrating God's law, his word, hymns of confidence, wisdom psalms, royal psalms, historical psalms, and poetic psalms. These psalms chiefly reveal God's character and His purpose and plan for His people, that He would be glorified through them. The psalms as Hebrew poetry are highly structured, and we'll see that today to some degree. We're not going to dwell on that. but And by the way, the Hebrew, uh, Hebrew poetry makes up about a third of the Old Testament. But we see structure expressed in three ways. Three different ways. Balance lines, which is called parallelisms, word plays, and sound plays. There are several kinds of parallelisms, some of which is in our psalm today, or several, I think. Synonymous parallelism, in which the lines express the same thought in different words, each like line one and two is saying the same thing, but using different words. There's antithetical parallelisms in which the lines express opposite thoughts by using either contrast or by stating the positive and the negative. Sort of the same. There's synthetic parallelism in which the next two or three lines develop the thought of the first line. And chiasmic parallelism parallelism in which the pattern of poetry expresses the message in a descending or ascending order with the main point being in the middle. The Psalms are outlined in five different books, each ending with a doxology. The first book is Psalm 1 through 41. The second book, Psalm 42 through 72. The third, Psalm 73 through 89. The fourth book, Psalm 90 through 106. Psalm, or the fifth book, Psalm 107 through 150. David wrote at least 73 of these psalms. The sons of Korah account for 10. Asaph for 12. Other authors include Solomon, Moses, Heman, Ethan. 50 psalms remain anonymous as to their authorship, although Ezra may have written some of these. The Psalms were written between about or 1410 B.C. to the late 6th or early 5th centuries B.C. So please turn with me to Psalm 1. You can certainly see it on the screen, but you might enjoy or benefit from having it. The author of this psalm is not identified, but I believe, as well as others, that David wrote both Psalm 1 and 2. Psalm 1 serves As an introduction to the entire book of Psalms. And its theme is as big as the whole Bible, giving us two peoples, two paths, and two destinations. So we'll begin this morning. Read along with me in Psalm 1. What a glorious psalm that many of us have memorized. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat. Of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God thank you for this glorious psalm, for the truth that we see in it. God, may it be a God to us. May it direct us to our need for you, for the blessing that comes through you. God that we might be complete that we might be like you as we were created to be. May your spirit illuminate your word, shed light upon it that we might understand. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we will begin this morning with the pronouncement of blessing. The psalmist writes, How blessed is the man. Here we have an exclamation of strong emotion. Adam Clark, that British theologian from days gone by, wrote this. He calls it, in other words, or I should say, he calls it an exclamation produced by contemplating the state of the man who has taken God for his portion. You see, it's that man that's blessed. Here the word blessed is plural. So Spurgeon translates it, All the blessednesses of the man. The blessings, plural. Paul teaches us that in Christ, in the new covenant, that God, our Father, has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. You see, our blessedness comes from God. He is our portion. Our blessings are in him. Blessed is sometimes and properly, I think, translated happy. Yet we must understand that happiness today is circumstantial. But the happiness in Psalm chapter 1, biblical happiness, does not waver due to circumstances because it's found in God who is all in all. Again, Adam Clark describes the blessed man as that man that one among a thousand who lives for the accomplishment of the end for which God created him. He lives for that end, that purpose for which God created him, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Notice, secondly, the prerequisite of blessing. Verse 1, How blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. The psalmist in verse 1 begins with a negative. What the blessed man does not do, what he's not known for, for whom he's not identified. The blessed man is not like the world. He's not like the children of the evil one. He's not associated with them. He does not follow their practice. The Bible says if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. It's through faith in Christ We have new hearts, new desires, new purposes, and that is to please and to glorify the one who bought us. So the blessed man is not like those of the world because his heart has been changed through regeneration. The psalmist writes, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, wicked refers to a criminal here, a guilty one. And it's more than just breaking the law. It's a state of being given over to depravity in its fullness. The wicked live completely devoid of God's glorious standard. They've given themselves over to the walk, to a walk of depravity in its fullness. Counsel speaks of advice. So the blessed man does not walk in the advice of the wicked one. Solomon wrote, "The thoughts of the righteous are right, but the counsels of the wicked are deceitful." Proverbs 12:5. The advice of the wicked brings deception. The blessed man does not walk in the advice of the wicked. That is not his practice, that is not his habit. The wicked man is not his source of wisdom or knowledge. He doesn't look to him for truth. The psalmist continues, How blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the, of the wicked, nor stands in the path of sinners. The word stand means to, to stand, to abide, to remain. Path is the course of life. It correlates with the New Testament concept of our walk. You know, our habit of life, our walk with a destination, a destination of holiness. So the blessed man refuses the sinner's course in life. He refuses that lifestyle. He no longer walks as the Gentiles walk. You see, what you're seeing here and what we will see in the Psalms and many Old Testament passages, that the things that we've learned in the New Testament, in particular in the book of Ephesians, did not they did not begin in the first century A.D., these truths have their foundation back in Old Testament passages. God's word is progressive. Well, back to this, back to the subject here. Solomon wrote, enter not into the path of the wicked and do not go into the way of evil. Avoid it. Do not pass by it. Turn from it and pass on. A dogmatic statement, a warning to us. So the writer says, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the path of sinners. But then he adds, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Sit means to dwell, to remain. Scoffer, the word simply means literally to make mouths at. We would say in English to mouth off. It means to scoff, to mock, to scorn. The blessed man does not put himself in that seat, the seat of the scoffer. He refuses to mock God, to mock holy things, to mock God's people. The blessed man is reverent towards the things of God. And notice there's an obvious spiritual degeneration here, isn't it? Walk, sit, sits down, or excuse me, stands, and then sits. How blessed is is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Nor stands in the path of sinners. Nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Why the progression? Because sin is progressive. Man does not fall into the depths of sin overnight. It's progressive. He takes one step at a time and goes further and further into his depravity. So in summary, the blessed man does not walk in the advice of the wicked. He does not stand in the lifestyle of offenders. He does not dwell in the seat of those who mock holy things. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, Do not be deceived. Evil companionships corrupt good morals. You see, we need to be salt and light, but we must never allow the darkness of the corruption of the lost to impact us, to influence us. Those who are dead in sins are not the blessed man's companions. Rather, they are those in whom we love and proclaim the gospel to. Steve Lawson said, our boat must be in the water, but no water must be in our boats. You see, we are in the world, but not of the world. So in verse 1, the psalmist warns us that the blessed man does not do these things. That is, These are not his habits. This is not who he's identified with. But in verse 2, he turns to the positive, stating what the blessed man is known for. And notice the contrast from what we've just read in verse 1. Verse 2, we see the pondering and delight of the blessed man. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Delight speaks of pleasure, desire. It's what the blessed man truly loves with all his heart. It's where he spends his time. It's what he delights in. He finds pleasure in the Word of God. He no longer loves the world nor the things of the world. He loves the things of God. He loves spiritual things. Meditate can be translated to chew the cud like a cow. It means to ponder or to murmur. It's to regurgitate the Word of God over and over. It's bringing it back up, bringing it back to our minds to get all the nutrition, all the flavor out of it that we can possibly get. The blessed man delights in the law of God and understand the only scriptures that the psalmist had was the Torah. He was actually, they were actually writing scripture, whether they knew it or not. The blessed man saturates his mind and heart with the word of God. The word of God is the blessed man's affection. It is his appetite. It is his hunger, and he's never satisfied without it. Steve Lawson said, and I love this example. If there was ever a man that was the example of the blessed man in church history, it was George Whitfield. Converted at age 21, he began to study the Bible on his knees, praying over every word of Scripture that was open before him. Arnold Gallimore in his biography of Whitfield, writes this. We can visualize Whitfield at five in the morning in his room above Harris's bookstore. He's on his knees with his Bible, his Greek New Testament, and a volume of Matthew Henry spread before him, that commentary. And with intense concentration, he reads the portion in English. He studies the words and the tenses in the Greek, and then considers Henry's exposition of the whole until finally he prayed over every line and every word, feasting his mind and his heart upon the word of God. Whitfield himself said, If we once get above our Bibles and seek making the word of God our sole rule, we are open to all matter of delusion and are in great danger of making shipwreck of our faith. Spurgeon referred to Whitfield as a walking Bible. Also, He said, Spurgeon said, when he preached, the Bible flowed from his mouth. Just read his sermons and you'll see that. As a result of Whitfield's devotion to the Word of God, Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, other men nearly existed. Whitfield lived. See, it's in the Word of God that we have life. It's through the cleansing of the Word of God, the Word of God pointing us to the living water who is Christ, that we have life. Whitfield found life through the Word. He was an example of the blessed man. May we be examples of the blessed man, that we have the same hunger and thirst for the Word of God, pondering it, chewing the cud day and night. Now notice this beautiful picture of the blessed man in verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The word planted is used in a couple different ways in the Hebrew text. It's used to plant. That's the obvious one. But it's also used to transplant and I would suggest that the regenerate man the blessed man has been transplanted out of the desert out of death and decay to the streams of living water to the water of the word imagine the contrast in an Israeli desert with a secluded oasis Get Chris to put up the picture here but I just want you to understand this concept In the deserts, there is sometimes for miles nothing but maybe a sprig, nothing of substance. But all of a sudden, where there's water, a stream comes up. Obviously, a spring came up, resulted in a waterfall. It's total contrast with the desert adjacent to the stream is life. Vegetation is growing, birds are singing, animals are coming for a drink. There are trees and bushes and vines and grass, all kinds of life. These are called an oasis. The water is living water because it's moving. It's not putrid. It's not decaying. It gives life. So the blessed man is described as being transplanted by the streams of water. And that's exactly what happens in the new birth. We are transplanted by living streams, by water, where we can drink from the truth of God's Word. And the Word of God brings life. The Word of God points us to Christ, the living, the living water Himself. It's the truth that sets us free. It's Christ who sets us free. You see, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. The Word of God reveals Christ reveals his glory, reveals his salvation, the salvation that man has in him. When the woman at the well asked Jesus for a drink, remember what Jesus said? Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become a well of water springing up to eternal life. In our text, the word streams is an interesting word as well. Hebrew is not as precise as Greek, but there are words that have dozens of meanings. But you can tell what it means generally from the context But the word stream can refer to something called a rill or a rivulet. These are small channels directing water from a river or a stream into the field for irrigation purposes. Now, that's an interpretation, and I'm going to make an application based on it, and then we'll get back to it. But I would suggest that God has provided the living water. but man has the responsibility to get that water out into the desert to men and women who are thirsty for a drink of living water. Living water is moving water. It's water that gives life. It's not stagnant. It's not toxic like stagnant water. It gives life, and we must take the gospel to a lost and dying world. You can accept that application or not, but I think there's something there. So what's the purpose of being transplanted to living water? To know the God of the Word? To have our spiritual thirst quenched by the source of life through which we grow and thrive and produce fruit? It's not some academic pursuit. It's that we might know the living God through the Word of God that gives life. The psalmist said in Psalm 42... As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Oh, that we might have a thirst for the Word of God, that we might know the living God. So, how do we take it in? He's already told us in verse number two. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He delights in the Word of God. He ponders it. He chews the cud over and over that he might know the God of the Word. You see, the Word of God is sufficient. You don't need anything else. You need the Word because in the Word we have both what we should believe and how we should live, how that applies to our lives. Because Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, all Scripture is God-breathed, is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be complete, it's mature or complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work, equipped to serve God. Equipped to be used for his glory when we delight in God's word pondering it day and night notice what happens Verse 3b that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither In all that he does he prospers He begins with this statement that yields its fruit in its season See when maturity comes fruit comes What is the fruit of the blessed man? I would suggest especially in the New Covenant, it is the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We could sum it up and say it's a love for God and a love for one another in the body of Christ. First John tells us that an evidence of being born again is having a love for one another. We know what the fruit of our lips is. It's praise to God, Hebrews thirteen five, And we know that the fruit of a Christian eventually leads to others coming to faith in Christ as our lives are changed. God uses our testimonies. When people see what God can do in the life of a sinner, they're drawn to Him by His Spirit. This whole process is supernatural. See, spiritual growth... Spiritual fruit cannot be explained naturally. Producing spiritual fruit cannot be explained by earthly means. The blessed man feast on the word of God and he thrives. He produces spiritual fruit. Notice verse 3 again, and its leaf does not wither. He may not grow at all times, but he never dries up. He never dies. The blessed man is an evergreen tree, isn't he? He has eternal life, abundant life, life everlasting. He perseveres by the hand of God. And then he says in all that he does, he prospers. Prosper. It's not talking about wealth or success. It means to accomplish and fulfill the purpose for which we were created. That purpose to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The blessed man is blessed with spiritual blessings, things that money cannot buy, and death or decay cannot take away. Now notice a prohibition concerning blessing in verses 4 through 6, and I won't read the whole text at this point, we'll just go through it. Verse 4, the wicked are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. You know how it literally reads in the Hebrew? Not so the wicked. Not so is in the emphatic position. You see, word order matters in both Hebrew and Greek. The first words are the emphasized words, they're like us highlighting something. So God says, Not so the wicked. The blessed man delights in the word of God, not so the wicked. The blessed man ponders God's word day and night, not so the wicked. The blessed man is a thriving tree, not so the wicked. The blessed man produces spiritual fruit, not so the wicked. The blessed man prospers spiritually, not so the wicked. You see, the wicked may look righteous on the outside, but inside they're rotten to the core. And that's precisely what Jesus said in Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whited tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful. But within you're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness. The wicked are not so. The wicked are not so. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. For the farmer in that day to separate the wheat from the chaff, they would typically find a high hill and they would build what's called a threshing floor. And there, their people, their workers, would throw the wheat up into the air. The chaff is already loose from the wheat by that point, And the chaff had to be a breezy day, but the chaff would blow away and the grain would fall back down, separating it. You see, the wicked are here today and gone tomorrow. They have no value in God's kingdom. They have no purpose for the glory of God because the wicked are not so. Verse 5, therefore, the wicked shall not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. And I have... I've not dealt with all the parallelisms, but here's a very clear example of synonymous parallelism. He says the same thing, verse five, first line versus the second line. He uses different words to bring understanding. Therefore, the wicked shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Albert Barnes notes, the meaning is that they would not share the lot of the righteous in all places and at all times where character is determined and where the divine estimate of human character is manifest. It would be found that they could not stand the trial, abide the result, so as to have a place with the righteous. The wicked have no lot with the righteous. They have no reward with the righteous. Verse 6, for the Lord knows. Here's another contrast. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly will perish. Again, we see the contrast between the righteous and the wicked, the sinner, the blessed man, and the sinful man. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. He knows is not just a reference to knowing about a person. It's not stating the obvious. Rather, it speaks of relationship to know, to care, to instruct as a kinsman. God knows the righteous intimately with care and concern and instruction. The way, again, refers to the course of life, a person's walk. And righteous is precisely that. It is one who is just or even lawful. It's not talking about self-righteousness. We know that the same teaching is true in the Old Testament. Abraham believed God, and it was credited. It was imputed to him for righteousness. Salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. The blessed man lives righteously because he has been made righteous by God. Old Testament and New Testament. But he writes, but the way of the ungodly will perish. Perish is to lose oneself. Ultimately, to lose one's soul, so they write, by implication, it's to perish with no way of escape. And it speaks of separation from all God's goodness, from his mercy and his grace and his kindness. You see, today, even the unbeliever has common grace. He experiences the common grace of God, but one day that'll be taken away and God's patience will run out and he will be the unbeliever, the sinner, the wicked man, as we see in the context here, will be exposed to God's righteous wrath forever. Today he's patient, long-suffering, not willing that any of his people would perish, but that all would come to repentance. So to perish ultimately means to be exposed to God's wrath forever. Separated from his goodness, his blessing forever and ever. The way of the ungodly, the wicked, will perish. This is a psalm, a psalter, a psalm to be sung by the people of God. But think about this. Some of those who sang this psalm at the temple, some of those Jewish people did not believe God. They believed in God, but they did not believe Him. They were not saved by grace through faith. They were wicked. They were sinners. They were scoffers. And I'm afraid that many in churches today do not know Him. They have never been transplanted by streams of living water. So I'd say to you, as I often say, if you have never had a spiritual birth, a heavenly birth, you're the sinful, wicked man of Psalm 1, devoid of God's blessings. God says, not so the wicked. Here today, gone tomorrow, gone to judgment, to perish To be separated from the mercy and grace of God forever. With no escape forever. If you've never had a heavenly birth, you are still in your sins. You're condemned. You're not the blessed man. You don't know God's blessings. You don't have spiritual blessings. Because not so the wicked. But I'm glad that God is the great transplanter who transplants the sinner out of the desert, out of death and destruction, and plants us, transplants us by the rivers of water that we might have life and we might have it abundantly. Only God can take a wicked man and transplant him into God's blessings, into life. I want you to see this. I was thinking thinking through this passage and something dawned on me that I'd never seen before. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29, Paul's writing in the first epistle to the Corinthians, For consider your calling, brethren. There are not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not, the nothings, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man will boast before God. In this list, God has chosen The nothings, the not so's, the wicked, the sinner, the things that are not, to nullify those things that are, to nullify those who think they're something, so that no man may boast before God. Only God can transplant the wicked by his grace, out of the desert, out of death, out of separation from God's grace and transplant them by the rivers of living water that they might know Christ, that they might have life. You only have life in Christ. When Jesus spoke with Nicodemus in John 3, he made it clear that salvation is a heavenly birth. And just like physical birth, we have absolutely no part in it. There's nothing that we can do to be born into this world. There's nothing that you can do to be born again. It is totally a work of God. Remember what he said in John 3, 8, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. So in other words, we must be born of the spirit. And just like the wind, we can only see the effects. We don't cause the wind to blow. We don't make the Spirit to blow upon us. We just see the effects when the Spirit moves. Salvation is spiritual birth. Jesus said to, to the religious Jews in John six forty four, No man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That's because salvation is of God. We cannot do anything to save ourselves. We cannot live righteous enough. We cannot earn it through good works. We cannot earn it through baptism or giving or church attendance or sacrifice. You see, here's the point. You can't sacrifice to know God, to be saved. Jesus is the sacrifice that saves. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. It's through His sacrifice that we're saved. The Apostle John wrote, 1 John 2, 2, He Himself is the propitiation, the appeasement, the satisfaction for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world, for those from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. If you've never had a heavenly birth, you're in the desert dead in trespasses and sins. Remember what God warned Adam, literally from the Hebrew text, in the day that you eat the fruit, dying you shall die. It says in the English, you shall surely die, but dying is twice in the Hebrew, dying you shall die. What a picture of being in the desert. You might look like you have life, but you're really separated from the water that gives life. And you're dying physically. And one day, you will cease to be and dry up. Apart from salvation in Christ, you are in the desert, spiritually dead, awaiting physical death and a judgment. And since you cannot save yourself, look to Christ. Look to the one who appeased God's justice for those who believe. Rest in his sovereign saving work. Trust in him as the son of God to save you from sin, to save you from this corrupt generation. Put your confidence in him, completely in him alone. There is nowhere else you can look. There's nothing you can do. Look to Christ. He is your only hope. Come to him in repentant faith and trust him with all your heart and he will save. That is his promise to those who repent and believe the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you, God, for how you speak through your word. God, we see two peoples, two paths, and two destinations. God, may we, by your Spirit, walk in that path of righteousness. May we ponder your word. May we chew the cud. May it be our delight, God, that we might grow and produce fruit and prosper. And if there's a person here that doesn't know you, God, please, today, we pray for your Spirit to save that person, that they might know you, that they might discover the living water, the Lord Jesus Christ, who saves to completion. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.